0: My guest is Raphael Baer. Raphael Baer is a political journalist and broadcaster, and he writes a political column for The Guardian newspaper, and he's the author of a new book, Politics, A Survivor's Guide, How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged. Welcome to the podcast, Raphael. Thanks very much for having me. Right. Let's get cracking. Um, There's so much to cover in your book, which is fascinating and well worth not just reading, but also buying. (laughs) Uh, But I thought we'd try and focus a bit if we can. Uh, maybe slightly predictably on on the Europe question and UK's long-term views on how they could now cooperate with with the European Union after the uh, the referendum result of now seven years ago. Your your book is is full of fascinating insights about why things went a certain way all of these years ago. Uh, we obviously have to be all of us constructive and positive, but. Um, do you, do you think there are any lessons to be drawn from how the, in effect, the, the, the Remain camp handled uh, the, the referendum campaign and, the, and the, all the post-result uh, activity in terms of rejoin and uh, second, second vote, all that kind of stuff? How, how optimistic are you that the, the Remain camp, which is getting bigger by the day through demographics, and th- never mind anything else, uh, can actually, in a sense, turn things around in terms of our, the British approach to Europe? I think the key lesson there and the one that it took me probably a little bit too
1: long to to um, to grasp although it was in the back of my mind all the way through that very intense February period between the referendum 2016 and the actual enactment of Brexit 2019 2020 was that the argument shifted away from Britain's membership of the European Union towards something more fundamental about the way British politics was responding to the referendum, which for the Leavers was a question of democracy. Now, and the Remainers with perfectly good reason were very upset about the way the referendum had been conducted uh, and they saw, uh, and I believe, and they believed and I agreed that Brexit would be a disaster, but they had misunderstood the way in which the Leave campaign had very successfully co-opted a kind of revolutionary energy for a project that had previously been quite rarefied, you know, leaving the EU was not a majority position at all, mm. uh, really, right up until 2015, 2016. Even Eurosceptic Tories weren't calling for Britain to leave the European Union, uh, and yet once that choice had been made in the vote, uh, and I, I feel the the Remain campaign got sort of bogged down in trying to relitigate whether that should have been the result. And a lot of the people who had voted to leave, they voted to leave for reasons that had nothing to do with the actual European Union, uh, and all to do with a lot of other talk about. Um, the leavers retained a portion of moral high ground about getting the job done and fulfilling the will of the people and remainers responded to that as if it was a sort of a populist or even a sort of fascistic proposition and argued back very aggressively in a way that just entrenched a position. So that's basically the lesson that the Remainers, they walked or they they were lured into and then blundered into a trap that cast them as essentially an anti-democratic elite trying to override the will of the people. And that has set back the cause of
0: realigning with the EU, let alone rejoining it for, for a generation, I think. The, the the Remain camp in its broadest manifestation is often criticized probably rightly that for not for not getting it, for not seeing it, it coming, the, the 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 Brexit result of seven years ago. You do say in the book, in this post-Brexit world, is it often forgotten that leaving the EU was a crackpot notion so recently, and it, it was a crackpot notion until until what 2016.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you know, the, the problem there and this continues to be an issue uh, but I suppose here's where there is hope for pro-europeans in the UK is that brexit never could, always meant two completely different things in different contexts. so it meant the, pra- the real technical business of disentangling the UK from membership of the EU, which is how by the way yeah everyone real in Brussels saw it obviously yeah. because that's what it was yeah. um, and then it meant this uh, this sort of cipher for all these other cultural uh, nationalistic, propositions about British society that were all about the mythologies of Britishness and sovereignty and Englishness, actually, very specifically. And, uh, you know, depending on the context, what people were using this word Brexit to mean shifted. Uh, Mm. And it meant that when you sort of, when Remainers were attacking Brexit, they were actually attacking the national identity of a lot of people. And they didn't realise that was happening. But what it also means then, I think, is that that's because once Brexit was entangled with a notion of national identity and patriotism for an awful lot of people, um, it, it's immediately ceased to be a crackpot notion. Uh, an example I would use its going to sound a bit per- perverse here, but I think it's very instructive. Is that, uh, And it's not my idea. It was it was a diplomat who, who told me this. And I find it useful that it, when you look rationally at the decision Britain made to leave the EU, it feels completely it was just not wasn't a good idea uh, economically in trade and diplomacy. You know that as well as I do. And actually British Euroscepticism was always a bit peculiar, but it's so fused with a wider issue about British identity, British political culture. It's a little bit like the way a a large amount of American society views its relationship with guns, right? So from the outside, it's obviously insane right, that you can go into a supermarket and buy an assault rifle and ammunition. And clearly, if you stopped people doing that, fewer people would be shot. That to me is self-evident. And yet yeah. it's really hard to have that argument with half of America, because it's become an identity proposition. And so we're, that's the sort of place that Brexitism and Euroscepticism have become. It, it's sort of, we might think it's irrational, but you have to deal with it as the thing it is, rather than as the, as the sort of rationalised thing we would like it to be.
0: You're very critical, uh, and again probably rightly so, about the Remain the remain constituency, if you want to call it that. You say that the, the group that would go on to become the Remainers wasted years in complacency, thinking Euroscepticism was nothing more than the dyspeptic burp of a few fringe dwelling curmudgeons struggling to digest modernity. But do you think that um, the Remain group again writ large have now learned that lesson rather better late than never? Well, first of all, I'd say that's a self-criticism. I mean, I'm talking about the first-person <laughs> plural there. That was very much me, um, uh,
1: and I think yes, I do. And and if anything, there's been a you know a kind of an overcompensation. I also describe the the, the sort of the horrible self sort of liberal self-hatred, the kind of cringe or yeah. the fear of of confronting. The, the plain fact that it was Brexit was a terrible idea and then it isn't working. And, you know, and, and this, I think is, you obviously see in the current Labour Party position and it's, you know, partly that's, sort of cephalogical, I mean, it's an electoral challenge for the Labour Party, they have to persuade people who voted Leave to also vote Labour, um, but it's bundled up in a whole set of complexes about the idea that somehow being a metropolitan, liberal, university-educated, pro-European has been so delegitimized as a kind of citizenship proposition relative to Leave voting, didn't go to university, older, male, yeah. white, you know, that, that segment that the, the, you know, even though one vote should count as, as much as another, actually, it's a sort of second-class political proposition now in, in the in, in the sort of the, I don't know how to describe it, but in the sort of the moral championship of who gets to have an argument that cuts through in British politics, the Remain one
0: got relegated. It's almost as if you're saying that uh, to be pro-European in Britain, mean, in, at least, means that you don't actually like your country or are proud of your country. And you go on to talk about the left struggling even now, especially now, with his whole issue, whole issue of patriotism, and how can you be on the on the centre left of politics and still you know be happy to you know to waver the union jack without being criticised for being for for cashing out, as it were. Yeah, this is a very
1: old problem for for the liberal left, that it, it, uh, you know, and and there are reasons why symbols of of British nationhood and history are complicated. I mean, it is you know, objectively true that the you know, the the Union flag has flown over some atrocious things, but also objectively true that Britain has done some great things in history. You know, it's it's madness to sort of choose exclusively one proposition uh, over the other. But more widely. I think that you know, just I mean that this is a, that's a big cultural argument, and it gets very complicated. But specifically on the European question, I mean the abject failure over a long period of 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 sort of pro-Europeans to articulate what the patriotic case for participation in the European project was. I mean, you know, Ted Heath. You know, f- you know, fought in the in the war. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he was a pro-European in, in and that and he, and that generation actually voted Remain a little bit more than the
0: yeah. the, the, the older, very very slightly people, yeah.
1: younger. Generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the interesting thing, and and, and I, in that sense, you know, I think a lot of blame actually lies there. I would say with David Cameron and the, and the sort of squeamishly remain Eurosceptic Tories who played a Eurosceptic game for a very long time, sort of fed a lot of red meat to the hard right of their party, and then at the 11th hour said, oh, but hang on a second, obviously it would be a stupid idea to leave the EU, but had no... Yeah. serious moral or cultural apparatus on which to stand that argument, and so they lost it. But it was their job, it was David Cameron's job to say, look, I'm the Prime Minister of this country, of course I care about this country, I want it to thrive, I want it to be successful, it would be madness mm-hmm. to do this thing, it would be an act of self harm, trust me, I'm a, pri- I'm a bloody Prime Minister. And he, he didn't articulate that well at all.
0: Yeah, the thing about the, the Second World War you touched on, you say in the book, book also, Britain's post-war relationship with Europe has been defined not by the veterans of conflict, even, because you mentioned people like Ted Heath, but by the children who idolise them. And it's true, all these people now are saying, you know, we fought the Second World War. They were probably hardly born when the Second World War was, was taking place, right?
1: Yeah, the the the, the national mythology that informed and I used—I don't mean mythology as something that's not true. I mean mythology oh, no. in terms yeah. of something that gets sort of has resonance yeah. uh, and has yeah. been sl- sort of semi-fictionalized. You know what I mean? Uh, but that—that—that that, that is the foundation of British Euro skepticism. Is—is not the war itself. It's the the sort of the post-war uh, films. It's it's Sunday afternoon spent watching the Dam Busters and the Great yeah. Escape. And it is that generation. It's the Boys' Own retelling, uh, and it is the. I think it's the baby boomer generation. I mean, look at like Nigel Farage, for example, it's a good example. I mean, Nigel Farage is the same age as Keanu Reeves, you know, he's a young, (laughs) and you know, same sort of age as Gary Lineker. I mean, it's not, it's extraordinary how these people have somehow project themselves as uh, custodians of a venerable past when they've just chosen a a, a radical right-wing
0: position on a political spectrum and other positions are available. You mentioned the Labour Party. I have to press you on this. Do you do you uh, understand and agree with uh, Keir Starmer's strategy, if you can call it a strategy, of not really talking about the EU, ne- unless he can avoid it? Uh, and certainly when he does have to mention it, talks very much like a Conservative in terms of saying no question of uh, rejoining DER, but also no question of re- going back in the single market or customs union and no freedom of movement. The, the Labour Party leadership is pretty categorical. There's not much of a difference between what they're saying and uh, what the... Conservatives are saying at the moment. Is that fair? Um, I think that's an accurate description of the situation. (laughs) Um, Do I agree with it?
1: I can see from the electoral point of view of the Labour Party the challenge they have almost entirely because of the electoral system that we have, because the, the way the votes are distributed and the way the constituencies have to be won means, as I was saying a moment ago, uh, leave voters, you know, certain demographic segment is just privileged over others. I mean, the Labour Party is piling up pro-European votes in London constituencies, but they don't count as much as those, you know, what we call, let's call the red wall of seats that were traditional yeah. Labour voters who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. Now, you know, there's, I have a sort of complex view on this to the extent that I'm not persuaded by the argument that there's simply no alternative, that Labour has to just go, um, has to just essentially completely swallow all the snake oil uh, mm-hmm. about what Brexit is and should be and just and say we're going to make the best of it. Um, and, I, and because you know, it, if, if something's not true, I, I don't think political expediency makes it true. It just makes your politics more shabby if you pretend it's true. But that said, uh, I also think the kind of political leadership uh, and the quality of, of communication and charisma that you would need to be able to turn that around between now and the next election is mm. not in the possession of Keir Starmer. So. It's going to sound like a really miserable sort of mean-spirited thing to say, but it might be the best position for him because I yeah. don't think he's got what it takes to, to to make the ideal position work. But I think that position in better hands could
0: work. And again, I don't know if you agree, but he seems to be stuck. I mean, I think we we understand, have a certain sympathy for this Labour Party leadership position, but um, he's going to be pressed on the, on the whole uh, shadow front bench more and more as we get close to a. Uh, general election about the the cost that hit of the economy of, of Brexit, and uh, you have to at some point say yes, our economy is not too, could have done better if we hadn't left the European Union. I'm choosing my words here, uh, which then begs the next question: Well, why don't you make more of a case for for the European Union at least joining the single market? That seems to be his dilemma, though. No? Yeah, well, the the single
1: market thing, that's more straightforward in the sense that I I don't think it would be a good idea for the Labour Party to go into a general election with a policy that amounts to saying open door immigration again. That is just politically uh, not uh, not something that you can sell in maybe one day. But between now and the next general election, no. Um, And then the problem you get, as we know, from all the arguments from 2016 onwards, is you're then in this horrible position of the. sort of softish brexit how soft and the softer you go on brexit the less you satisfy the fundamental demands that were the ones that that led leave to win the referendum campaign i mean this is a point i I make i think in the book that the reason there wasn't a compromise brexit is because no one wanted it because if you are if to make the argument for soft brexit is ultimately to make the argument for no brexit because any compromise deal is inferior to membership uh and if you fundamentally believe that uh, sovereignty and you know, ending the four freedoms and all the rest of it is a fantastic idea. And even a, you know, a, 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 the, being in a customs union, it compromises you because you can't sign trade deals because of the, you know, the common external tariff and all the rest of it. Mm. If you believe that, then the, the, the hardest Brexit is the best one. And so there, there was no middle ground. Mm. And for Labour to have a manifesto that says well, we're going to shuffle back into the middle of the ground just leaves leaves them straight back into that bog. So it is incredibly difficult.
0: Right. Well, let's move on a bit then. Um, uh, I know you don't like to think of this book as a, as a memoir, per se, but it is quite a personal book. It's not just a book of political analysis. It, throughout the book, there are very nice personal p- parts about your own life and your, your family and, and, and your Jewish heritage, your Jewish background. Uh and, and that in it seems to me informs quite a lot of the, the, the writing uh, chapter uh, after chapter. I mean going back a bit to the Labour Party uh, in the Corbyn era, uh how I was quite surprised, I was about to say, how prevalent do you think is anti-Semitism now uh in the in the United Kingdom? Uh you, you seem to be saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that it it it's it can be quite subtly expressed sometimes, but it's certainly there and certainly insidious. Is it have things got demo, demonstrably better? Both in the Labour Party and more broadly the UK, in terms of anti-Semitism, or is it still there if you know where to look, as it were? I think the for a lot for
1: a lot of people, I think that that whole episode with, with under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, where anti-Semitism really crept into and sort of suffused a lot of the mainstream of left politics, uh, was. Sort of simultaneously baffling to some people, uh, and also, I, yeah, I think for a lot of people, an education. You know, those who actually took the time to understand what was going on and where it had come from, as opposed to saying, "Well, this is all just being made up by Jews because they don't like Jeremy Corbyn," or you know, or because they don't like, they think actually, you know, sort of weaponizing anti-Semitism because they don't like Jeremy Corbyn's position on Israel, and all these arguments that were brought out to somehow downplay what was going on. Um, anyone who really examined. You know what happened i think understood that here was a very very old and old prejudice that, that sort of ebbs and flows and comes and goes in all sorts of cultures uh and had found its host in jeremy corbyn's labor party uh, i mean there, i mean left wing antisemitism has has very deep roots um from that point of view you know i'm quite i'm relatively optimistic now i think it you know that forced the conversation. Uh, about, you know, w- whether or not, ultimately whether or not, you know, the left can be racist, you mm. know, the, which was the problem really. The, the main obstruction was a lot of people who think, well, it c- clearly Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour can't be anti-Semitic and they can't be anti-Semitism in the Labour Party because the left equals anti-racism and Jeremy Corbyn equals the left. So, you know, mm. QED, what's your problem? Uh, and, you know, I like to think that now, there has been enough sort of unpicking of that to go well. You know, different types of prejudice and different sort of uh, and the, the antisemitism is a very peculiar kind of racism because people th- is almost legitimize it by thinking you're punching up because don't, don't the Jews have lots of money and power and influence? So right, they're the bad guys, right? You know, that, that's that mm. it's not like other forms of racism where it's the you know, white people oppressing, sort of punching down, uh, oppressing people minorities who don't have power. Whereas of course that proposition that Jews have, will have money and power and influence mm-hmm. is itself a racist proposition. So the, you know, I sort of was surprised by how much of it ended up in the book. Um, uh, and then I, I I thought of taking a lot of it out, frankly. And then I thought, well, yeah, well hey, first of all, it's my book. so put it <laughs> in there. But also it was so important in terms yeah. of clarifying how I felt about Brexit, how I felt about the left, how I felt about Labour, how I felt about European history uh, and, all the sort of sensitivities and the things that had made me feel that British politics was really unraveling—they uh, weren't caused by anti-Semitism—but I realised that my the sort of the panic sirens that were going off in my head had been triggered by historical associations that were absolutely rooted in my
0: Jewish background. Right. What I think about your book is that you have no magic wand, you haven't got that much power, even though you are a Guardian columnist. Um, uh, uh, What you do extremely well in the book, if I may say so, is that you explain very clearly why certain things happened in the past, why things are happening at at the moment. I'm talking specifically about um, misinformation and all that kind of stuff, wars on the internet. Uh, You're not being at all prescriptive, but you... Is, was that part of the objectives of the book to explain things as clearly as possible, the kind of world we're living in, not just Brexit, not just anti-Semitism, but you know, the the wars we are, we're living through to try and and so people to get people to realize and then they work out themselves how to how to at least they're better informed and they can work out themselves how to be uh, how to handle that in a in a more in a in a more enlightened way. I say that because I have one last quote. It doesn't really matter you say which side wins, this is, this is obviously information wars as long as everyone is more embittered and opinion is more entrenched by the process. The primary goal is to aggravate grievance, spread doubt about the veracity of all sources and trigger a chain reaction radicalization. I think as a reader, I mean, I, I kind of thought, oh, yes, I know that. But then re- reading it makes, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And it makes you a bit more self-aware. Is that, was that part of your objective in writing the book? Absolutely. I
1: mean, uh, yeah. I think. I mean, to be completely honest, I think my publisher would have loved it if I'd had a chapter at the end, which is seven things that will fix <laughs> this. You know, and yeah. I mean, I sort of toyed with that, and it just felt so glib. Uh, and it's just the reality that I don't know. What I don't want to do is despair, and the only thing I could really do is say, well, if I understand, you know, what are the processes that are making this happen? When I see the thing that that was so alienating for me was. Uh, seeing the, a sort of polarized debate, uh, witnessing the effect of that process you just described in, in that quote, and realizing that there was a, we were in a situation where it was very difficult to take a nuanced position on anything, or, or rather, or very difficult to sort of empathize with the position, understand why someone who you fundamentally disagree with, so why someone who voted leave, or why somebody voted for Donald Trump for that matter has arrived at that position, feels it very strongly, as strongly as you hold your view. Uh, and and the this, this challenge of thinking, how do I sort of entirely respect, as it were, the, the process, the, the human integrity that goes on in forming that position, while still basically believing it's fundamentally wrong, you know, they're, they're, without that then becoming a kind of arrogance that's a barrier. And that, that's a very difficult thing to navigate. Uh, And so I sort of wanted to understand, you know, why we've got to, why, you know, what is it about a democracy that means we're not, don't feel we're part of a common enterprise anymore, that, you know, Mm. normally, you know, I I should, if I lose, if my side loses an election, I'm disappointed, but I shouldn't feel it's a zero-sum game and the other side is then going to sort of, you know, take the ball off the pitch and chop down the goalposts. So there's no chance of me winning the second half. Um, and that's and so that's the sort of was it to get a sense of of how we got to that kind of democracy, which doesn't which feels much more brittle than the one where you know you have losers' consent and
0: and that, you know, less, there's less are less broad parameters less, and less space for compromise or or even dialogue because that that's not how the world works these days.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, and I certainly for me it was. The the process of examining that situation enabled me to think, okay, you know, it's possible to hold very contradictory thoughts in your head at the same time. Uh, and it is possible to get some distance from this without feeling that I just want to go and do something else and write about cheese or, you know, as opposed to politics. Um, although I'd happily write about cheese as well. You know, <laughs> please send me your cheese samples, dear listener. But um, the... Uh, and... I mean, I suppose you know, where I'm optimistic about that is I, I think there are lots more people. The reason I wrote the book is I think there are an awful lot of people who yeah. would be Do glad to think, OK, yeah. no, actually, we are. all. There is a middle ground. We, are, we all can sort of understand each other when you apply a bit of effort to it. The thing that makes me slightly pessimistic and I'm probably a bit more pessimistic now than I was actually when I finished the book is how incredibly small politics now feels relative to the scale of the challenges we've got. Right. So even the people, so Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are, I think, essentially decent people. You know, yeah. I don't think they're crooks. Yeah. I don't think they're, you know, yeah. they're not Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or no. Jeremy Corbyn for that matter. Um, but they seem so unequal. To to, the task you know, yeah, I mean, and they, we've recently had the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and you know, maybe it's a trick of age or the trick of the light, but you see some of the you know the people who are involved in that and some of the someone like John Hume has passed on, but yeah, you know, you, you, you just think that's a you know, I honestly think that is a different league to the people we've got running stuff now.
0: Right. Well, I I tend to agree, but there's not me I'm just ask the questions. Um <laughs> uh, a final thing, I want to finish uh, Raphael with how you start the book, which is so it's it's not a secret. It's about your your heart attack. Many people will not realize until they read the book or until now they listen to this podcast that you were quite seriously yeah, Ill. Spoiler alert: I, I live. <laughs> I, I survived the heart attack well, four four years ago. Am right, saying two thousand and nineteen? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. And then, first of all, the obvious question: How are you now? But before I go on any further, how are you feeling? Are you fully recovered and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, I have to. Yeah. I. You know, I, I
1: try and do lots of exercise. I, you know, what should I eat and I take quite a lot of, of, of yeah, cardiologically advised medicines, but I'm in pretty good shape now.
0: Well, well, you're very self-aware because you do sort of make fun of yourself saying, you know, I was I had a very unhealthy lifestyle. I ate too many pastries and chocolates, smoked too many cigarettes and so on, but that's changed. The point I'm raising, uh, I want to raise it is not just to make you sort of dwell on, you know, maybe a rather dark period of your quite recent life, but more to ask you about how, has it affected the way you, Where you, not just how you live, but but obviously it has in terms of lifestyle, but in your writing, has it, has your, the fact that you've been through this uh, huge uh, situation and come out the other end, obviously, uh, affected the way you write, the subtopics you write about, the style you write, uh, your levels of optimism or pessimism and infusing your writing?
1: Uh, it certainly has, or it certainly did very, very strongly. Uh, and uh, there was a period immediately afterwards when I thought I'm not going to be able to write about politics anymore, partly because it was I, I'd got so stressed by the whole situation. And that was a fact in having a heart attack in the first place. But partly also because that that this thing I described you know, of, of finding it so small and yeah. p- petty and just thinking, you know what, I'm just not that I don't care enough yeah. or I care yeah. differently I, or I need to care about other things yeah. more. Yeah. And then I had to sort of work through that because I don't have anything else to write about. This is what I know, (laughs) Um, uh, and so I I definitely—I mean, what I write about is still politics. But I I I, certainly—I think I now apply that slightly more detached lens. I still get angry about it, but I'm sort of trying to understand why it is the way it is, rather than you know, sort of getting bogged down in, in in. what, who's doing what to whom or one which yeah. argument is better than, you know, which campaign is stronger than which one. What I call the sort of the savviness problem of British politics, where you're just, you know, everyone's, you know, commentating on the game at such a minute level. They're not really considering whether or not, you know, it, this is a game we want to be playing at all. Uh, that, you know, as time has gone on, I have found myself being sucked right back into some of the old habits, not the old dietary habits, I don't think I'm smoking <laughs> again, but no, just sort of getting you know a bit lost in the weeds again. And then I always have to remind myself, it was very interesting, um, f- not that long ago, I had to record the audio book of, right. of the book. now to read it out loud. And in the process of reading those chapters and those bits where I talk about the heart attack, I did find myself thinking, "Oh yes, this is this is true. I must remember <laughs> this. You know, this is, I sort of, I definitely felt this when I was writing it. But actually, I must, you know, it, it, was, it was very instructive having to, as it were, hearing myself, reminds myself from the past that I needed to apply all those lessons and
0: realizing, oh yeah, no, they, they, you can forget. Right. Well, we have to leave it there, Raphael. Burr, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you.